Welcome to yet another episode of Lay Film. My name is Kevin, and I am one of the co-hosts of this podcast. And with me today, we have my other co-host, who is... Patrick. And we are bringing you back another episode of Twin Peaks, where this time we'll be discussing episode two, I want to say. Episode two or three. The the numbering of, of this first season is strange. Yeah, I'd say three. That's what my little yeah. download says. <laughs> uh, this this one is called Zen or the Skill to Catch a Killer. And on the last episode, I can't remember uh, what the final scene was of uh, the previous episode. Wasn't it where um, where Sarah is like looking down? Oh no no no! I, I have it in my notes right here actually. Oh no no! We we end with the scene of Jacoby listening to this tape of uh, Laura, and he's like holding on to the other half of the of the heart shaped necklace. Yes. He's crying. sort of. Oh yeah yeah he's crying and like listening to it like pining for some sort of like meaning or something like that. Yeah, and there's a zoom in on the most printed photo in Twin Peaks. <laughs> I feel like uh, Sarah and Leland, when they, you know, paid to have those those photos printed, they they just sent one off to every single person in the town. Uh, but we we start this episode off at the Horn residence, and I feel like they live at the Great Northern, possibly. Um, but this is this is probably one of my favorite character introductions of the series, uh, we finally get the the prodigal son, Jerry Horn, introduced to the series, who is the younger brother of Jerry. <laughs> uh, what what'd you think of this introduction, Pat? Uh, I, 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 I love it. I have a deep admiration for the the, the the swagger even when he comes into those glasses uh, and how 80s oh how perfectly 80s it is in the series uh, he's wearing suspenders it's like was it is it Devo or Devo he's like a member of the Devo band but yeah, then like again, he's an actor. I feel like he's only acted in the '80s and then in the the Return. Uh, I, the actor who plays Jerry is his name is David Patrick Kelly, and he is one of the most recognizable actors to me, just because when I was in middle school, and uh, do you do you remember uh, the Warriors at all, Pat? Yes. Yes. Uh, do you remember the video game that came out for PS2 for that? I didn't own it, but yes, I remember that as well. 
okay, like, I remember seeing, like, the previews for that game when I was younger, and that was, like, my most sought-after uh, wish list item for, like, whether it was my birthday or Christmas or whatever it was. And I just remember um, his voice in it where he's like, Warriors, come out to play. And I remember catching this movie one time, and I just, his performance in the movie makes it all for me. He is the perfect villain in that movie, uh, just with the, like his whole persona, and he just has such commanding stage presence. And I, I remember getting not only the video game, but the DVD of that movie for, I think it was for Christmas, and that was probably like one of the best like Christmases I can remember is like watching that movie while also playing the game. Um, but anyways, uh, yeah, David Patrick Kelly, uh, an amazing addition to the cast. I really love the fact that like it's it's like one of the most crazy introductions, like not even in like a, a an out an outlandish way or anything, but it's just it's so minute but amazing how he just comes in with like just a sandwich from like what was it like paris or something like that yeah I think he talks about the baguette <laughs> special he's like this is the best damn sandwich i've ever had and it's a baguette with brie and butter and it's like yeah I like I think he calls him frogs even <laughs> And then uh, you could you could tell that uh, the moment Jerry comes back, Ben sort of comes out of this this uh, lethargy that he has with his family, where they're all just sitting down having an amazing dinner, like it looks like. Um, and then in comes Jerry with like this <laughs> this bread, butter, and a uh, brie, and then he just immediately starts chomping into the sandwich. <laughs> and like you could tell that they're like two kids again. Yes. I, I, I love the brother energy, especially being, especially being a younger brother myself. There are there are reunions where you have a you have a Jerry entrance. And it feels great. <laughs> I think uh, my I went my brother was finishing uh, college like completely, and he had like a special I forgot what it was, but he invited me to attend like a, a lecture. To meet a professor because he was being like sent abroad that summer through the program and yeah it was just like a fun little like i sat through this lecture i didn't understand any of it except for like i know what cells are and then he's like okay let's go talk to the professor and then yeah i just had a little like <laughs> i was i had like a tight five minutes of comedy with the professor and it was okay see you forever and <laughs> that was it <laughs> but yeah just a great yeah you get to be that when you're the brother. You get to have like the, the swaggering entrance. Um, you remember the red hairs and do the little like, hey, oh, can you tell we're related? Hey, hey, okay, have a good night, folks. <laughs> and then you. <laughs> and yeah, that just, yeah, Jerry's whole character just resonates with that feeling. And so grounded, it feels, in reality, but it's also still, humorous, and off the walls. And it's, uh, it's, I, I really like Ben and Jerry's dynamic, especially because, I mean, I, just because of like the, the, the growth of it dirt throughout the series from what we'll see. Um, 
And I also sort of like how that dynamic is always the undercurrent of of every single interaction that they have uh, during this episode too. Because uh, right at the right at the beginning, when uh, Ben asks Jerry to you know go into the back, and then he tells Jerry what happened. He says, oh, you know, Leland's daughter died, and then also the deal didn't go through. And then the first thing that Jerry says is, oh, the deal didn't go through? And it's so sad how that's the first thing that is is his biggest worry. And, yeah, <laughs> and then all of a sudden he's like, oh, wait a minute, Leland's daughter died? It gets even more darker with what they do right after. Or they discussed yep. right after. It's like, whoa. <laughs> yeah, I um I I believe that this is the first episode that we get where we have a proper introduction to one eye jacks. And I wanna say that after this scene it it slowly transitions into that shot of the boat where they're both uh, on a speedboat eating... Uh, oh, no, no, they aren't eating the sandwiches anymore. Uh, but they're heading over across the water. And I want to say that One-Eyed Jax uh, is right... is, is somewhere, like, on the uh, Canadian border to where they have to cross a certain lake or, or waterway to get there. And this is also the first mention of the perfume counter. Yes. Because uh, Jerry says, or no, uh, Ben says that there's a new that there's a new woman at One Eye Jacks who's fresh from the perfume counter. And oh god, it's so. I hate the way that he says that too. He says freshly scented. And it, it just adds like an even more ominous feel to it. Oh yeah. And then uh, we transition to the Hayward residence, which, you know, once again, not much time has passed from the previous episode up to this one. Uh, it's literally right after dinner uh, from the previous episode where Donna and and James are sort of awkwardly sitting together. And then uh, we have we have Doc Hayward kind of you know, signaling like, hey, you know, it's getting late. We have to go to bed now, and then James is still just there. <laughs> Say goodnight, no funny business. This, uh, this scene, I don't know what it is. <laughs> yeah, this James and Donna scene. It, especially on this rewatch, it gave me the most, ah, uh, I don't even know how to, <laughs> It's like I'm I'm nostalgia for a past that didn't exist, <laughs> and I think this is like a little window into how the show resonates and like had that resurgence in popularity in what the late 2000s, 2010s. Mm -hmm. Because like we got you know we've been we had our psyches fractured with the internet culture and the smartphone stuff. Where I'm 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 looking at a still right now of uh, the living room. With the, the certain type of carpet, the coffee table. And like, yeah, it just takes me back to my 90s childhood. It's like, I've seen coffee tables like that. I've seen the carpet like that. I've seen people wear clothes like that. 
and it just takes me back. Like, I, yeah, for some reason I get like a nostalgia for an, an era I didn't live through. And it's all just like sing symbols of that era, but it just gives me a positive feeling. Like uh, on this rewatch, uh, James, I'm, he's a lot more likable to me. A lot more sentiment. It feels a lot more sentimental. Definitely agree with that as well. James, I feel, gets a lot of backlash or undeserved hate, I, I feel, which I, I can understand to a certain degree. However, I believe that he is one of the more positive male role models in the show and that he isn't brash, he isn't abusive, he isn't he isn't sick. <laughs> he, he he's just somebody who's in touch with their emotions who happens to have like some like this cheesy sort of loner persona. And what you were talking about with a uh, pining for this certain nostalgia that this scene encapsulates. I definitely agree with you on that as well, Pat, because this watching these first 3 episodes has been so comforting for me. It just allows me to like transport back to a, a period of time which, you know, there were, of course, there were so many other issues going on during the time of the production and everything. And, but it, it just makes me yearn for those days where I was just a kid hanging out with neighbors across the street, playing, playing hide and go seek or playing N64 with them in like GoldenEye or Mario Party and not having to worry about this this onslaught of information that is just constantly demanding our attention every moment of the day whether it's from a smartphone or from ads who are like harvesting data like all this other stuff it's two people hanging out in the living room and the moment they leave one another they aren't going to have a way to contact each other other than landline, but I don't know. There, there's something so strange about that form of communication through purely landline or just means that aren't instantaneous, such as like texting or anything like that. Yeah, it really, it really makes it really, it really communicates, I think, to us now who we do have instant access. It's like, yeah, they got to they gotta push their luck. James got to sit there and like, like unless Doc Hayward says leave now, I'm gonna like, you know, have some one-on-one -on -one time with my new girlfriend. And then they they only have that moment in that hour before they leave, and then maybe it's a day or two before they see each other again. Yeah, I, I always love uh, having moments like that where. You know, whether it's like a one-on-one -on -one thing or with multiple people. Because for me, I don't really... Like the times that I get to hang out with people, I always find that I'm never in a rush to leave. If if I don't have like other things that I have to deal with that day. Uh, but if, you know, a hangout session goes late into the night, I'm, I'm usually never the first one to head out first. I like to spend as much time as I can with the people that I'm hanging out with at that time because it's, I never know if I'm going to see them again after that. And it's 
I don't mean that in like sort of a forlorn way, but I'm I that's just the way that I I frame those things is uh like literally anything can happen, you know, the following day or the following hour or minute, anything like that to prevent you from seeing that person again. Um and I just like to treat every single moment like that as my last or potential last. And then if I get to see the person again, then it's all the more en enriching. Um, and I can definitely get why, you know, what you were talking about with um, James and Donna, you know, they're, they're choosing to, you know, push that moment just a little bit more to get a little bit more quality time out of it. Um, but after the scene, we we end up going to One Eye Jacks finally, and we arrive. Yes, the the long rumored One Eye Jacks, and we find out that the head of this place, or at least one of the the head the heads of the place, is named Blackie, and it seems like she has a bit of seniority over everyone there. Um, however. I don't know if if this if this place is being ran by Jerry or Ben or any other people, but it it, it kind of seems like a collective pool of people who, you know, uh, put a lot of resources into this place to make it a thing. Mm. Yeah, they're like shared investors. Mm -hmm. It's an evil and co-op. Yeah, exactly. It's it's definitely an evil co-op. And um we sort of get some more creepy interactions between uh Ben and and like some of the the employees there. Oh yeah, they're all they're all essentially in lingerie. Even the one who works the dock like welcomes them. Mm-hmm. And like, my my Canada, Canadian night, and she's out there in lingerie waving on the boat. And my impression from this place is that they, that if it isn't a if it isn't a minority, it's probably a majority of them are underage, because I want to say that uh, Ronette worked at the perfume counter, and Laura may have been tied to it. Um, and I'm not sure how old Ronette is. However, you know, with Laura still being in high school, and it, it just makes me place this this sort of a establishment in like even more of a darker light. Of you know, once again during the night, all of these very dark and disturbing things come to light. You know, people escape across the border over dark waters to find some sort of pleasure no matter how dark and disturbing it could be and uh, after that we oh yeah we go back to the great northern and we finally you know get some more uh, screen time with Cooper and Hawk calls him to let him know that the body and spirit of Ronette are are definitely far apart and that they don't have an don't have an estimated time to interview her and I love that I mean it isn't much but I just love that little uh like the the syntax and like the word choice that 
Hawk has whenever he, he is speaking with people. You can tell that he is somebody who is deeply in tune with his spiritual side, as well as uh, all living beings within the community. I, I love that we get more Hawk. And then, yeah, Cooper uh, learns from Hawk about the perfume counter, I believe. Mm hmm. And Ron, I used to work there as well. And then, uh, yeah, like you said, the, the, the mind and body are far apart. Or mind, body and spirit are separated. It's a perfect explanation. We don't need any more. Like, we don't need to be bogged down and whatever. It's, yeah, it makes perfect sense. I'm ready mm -hmm. for, to believe that. I'm ready to like, okay, when she's, she'll come out of it when she comes out of it. Yeah, it's a, it's a very... Yeah, I, I like that a lot too, just because they aren't pushing to... Because I've seen in like other shows where you have somebody who is catatonic or somebody who is uh, in like comatose or anything like that, and then they somehow come up with a method to wake them from their slumber or from their like uh, mental hibernation in a way. But with this, they're just letting it play out. They aren't going to push anything. They're just going to let Ronette come to whenever she decides to, or not when she decides to, but when um when her body and spirit are in tune again. And I want to say at this time, after the phone call, uh, the note gets slipped under the door and inside of it, Cooper discovers that somebody wrote the words Jack with one eye. Mm. And <laughs> we finally get the, the scene we, we got a bit of a context in the previous episode with Mike, Bobby, and Leo, and sort of their connection with one another. However, in the following scene, we get them all meeting together for the first time that, you know, uh, on screen. And the dialogue in this scene is so... <laughs> I just love every single bit of it from Leo, which is strange to say, but he's just cracking a bunch of, like, one-liners. Um, he's like calling, uh, oh yeah, he says, come on, Bobby, Leo needs a new pair of shoes. Yeah, so many lines, he calls him, calls him, does he call him Mr. Quarterback or just Quarterback? I think it's like, it's one of those two, yeah. <laughs> he's, he's shining a flashlight directly in their face. I think he has a, sh yeah, he has, he has a shotgun, in, a shotgun in one arm the whole time. <laughs> And then, uh, wasn't there somebody else with him? Oh yeah, there was a sort of like a cloaked or a, a silhouetted figure behind Leo. Yeah, be funny looking. In hindsight, he's wearing like a ski mask. <laughs> but it's showing, yeah, there's more people involved in this drug running. And then he uh, has, you know, at the at sort of the climax of the scene, he tells Bobby to you know go long. <laughs> while he cocks the shotgun. And then the, What's hey that? man. Was it Laura? When they talked about Laura's, Laura's had the money in the safety deposit box. Mm hmm What are we going to do about that? He goes, it's so dark. He's like, hey man, Laura was a wild girl. <laughs> to hit to her boyfriend while he's holding the shotgun. <laughs> oh I got my, my own. Yeah, then he's like, I got my own problems. Uh, he talks about, he says, you know, Shelly's stepping out. Oh yeah, how she's seen another 
a man, and then we get like a little bit more tension between Bobby and Leo in that moment. But Bobby does sort of like a, a brilliant move and and sort of like underplaying his reaction to it, or not underplaying it, but uh, you know, going along with it, and you know it. it we're we're left to to assume that they're gonna somehow try to come up with that ten grand that they owe Leo in the meantime. Mm-hmm. And transitioning into the next scene, uh, this this episode, like we were we were talking a bit about it beforehand before we started recording. But uh, Pat, you were saying that uh, this episode tends to encapsulate a lot of the you know the best moments of Twin Peaks. And this is one of those moments <laughs> with yeah, Ed and really, Nadine. Yeah, we're really getting it here. And, uh, yeah, we get that comical bit of uh, Ed, you know, trying to fumble for the door. And then he like opens it and then he just steps on all of Nadine's <laughs> runners and then gets a massive like wad of uh, grease on it. While Nadine is, isn't she exercising? Yeah, she's in like a... A very 80s exercise outfit. And she's like, I, I don't know what it is. It looks like a rowing machine, maybe. Mm-hmm. But yeah, she's just like on this weird metal rowing machine. And their house is all pink. A bunch of flowers. Flower, like I don't know what kind of flowers it is, but like a pink flower wallpaper. It's like a cream and pink everywhere. Carpet's pink. Couch is pink. A lot of pink. Yeah, you can sort of tell that Nadine is the one who does all of the the designing. She's the one who is basically in charge of everything that uh, makes up the the interior of the home. While Ed sort of gets his like his like garage or like his shop and everything like that. But they clearly have two split lives, and. Even just the way that Ed tries to like get in there, like he's just trying to be careful and everything. He, <laughs> and then he just gets lambasted by Nadine for accidentally stepping on the runners that she has in the middle of the room, <laughs> with all of her cotton balls. And then we get a a, a brief glimpse of her superhuman strength. <laughs> Doesn't she like bend like one of the the arms on the rowing machine? Yeah, she like bends the whole machine after. <laughs> Doing the Ed, you make me sick. <laughs> and uh, in the following scene, we get a bit more insight on Cooper's methods of investigation. Uh, we see the entire police department uh, in, indulging in this uh, endeavor by setting up random bottles. Uh, along with a chalkboard of suspects and it's just a it's such a a wonderful introduction to this side of Cooper it just it makes it all the more rich to me and then we transition into I think that this is the first time that we see Invitation to Love which is the spoof soap opera that's supposed to be playing in tandem with Twin Peaks. Yeah. Classic. Meta, the meta narrative. Everyone loves about the Twin Peaks. Mm-hmm. 
And then we get more of Shelly and Bobby. Uh, however, we then go back to... Is it the R&R Diner with Norma and Ed? Yes. Get, I, an like, iconic, iconic... I'm trying to think of the word. I, I have a... Uh, it's because I've seen the, all the series, but anytime Ed and Norma are in the diner and he's on the counter, and uh, it just, just, puts, just makes me warm in the stomach. It's just... It's, uh, yeah. I definitely agree. They're, they're probably one of the most healthy duos in the show. Even though the way that they are interacting with each other, it, it's it's sort of secret. Well, no, it, it's very secretive. However, I feel like everyone knows about it. Um, but yeah, it, it, they are definitely two of the more warmer people of the show. And I just love every bit of dialogue that they share with each other. They're just they lightly tease each other. They you can tell that they genuinely love one another. And every time yeah. they're together at the diner, especially, I get that. It, it's we won't get to it for two seasons, but season three, just one of the best moments in the whole series. Mm -hmm. And I can't help but remember it every time they're in this environment, even when they're young and not young. But was it twenty-five years apart? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just get the same feeling watching the scene between them as that scene. Yeah, it's it's such a sentimental feeling, especially like uh, it, it makes me yearn for for days where I, you know, of like visiting a loved one while they're working and then you're just spending time there with them. And, you know, after you've done whatever it is you've had to do for the day and it's almost like a second home for Ed. Uh, a much more comfortable and inviting one for him while Norma is just the constant there and they just seem so at peace whenever they're they're together as like you said especially in that diner um i i feel like that's what ultimately ultimately i find lacking in certain shows that i watch nowadays is that is that warmth like there's it's hard to put into even better words than that but it's just comforting <laughs> um and then uh we go back to the the headquarters the police headquarters where they're setting up the the bottles along with uh, the chalkboard and then we get a bit of a description or a, a disclaimer from uh cooper to the rest of the crew about Tibet and how he, how the Tibetan method came to him in a dream that he had three years ago. And it is a mind-body coordination that allows him to deduce uh, any sort of investigation that he's going into, where he can uh, deduct suspects, evidence, anything like that, purely through intuition. And, you know, as he explains to like Lucy what they're doing uh, for her to like chalk, you know, mark the names off the list and stuff. It, I just love every bit of uh, dialogue that Lucy has because you could tell that she 
is just wanting to do the best job that she can. However, she tends to hinder a lot of things in the progress. Uh, she's, she's invested. It's like a magic trick. They're all watching. Or she's yeah. like, she's participating. She's excited. <laughs> I love Hawk. He's like, he like leans on the chalkboard. <laughs> like he's like into it, but he's not super into it. He's like, <laughs> like what is this? And then and uh, we, wait, what were you saying? I was like, it's just funny to see him like leaning a little bit on the chalkboard when he's like a very spiritual guy. But like this is so out there for him even. <laughs> he's like, I'm just going to sit back and check this out and see if it. And then I think you were going to mention Harry's great line, like one of the best. <laughs> one of the many great interactions between the two, even in this episode. He's mm -hmm. like, yeah, when he pulls Cooper to the side and like there's like the arm over the shoulder. What is it? He says, like, uh, you're like, this really works or like. So this came to you in a dream? <laughs> like, <laughs> yes, tell me this. And yeah, he does like the big smile. Like, yes, Harry. <laughs> <laughs> I love like the unspoken trust between the two. It just goes like, yes, Harry, and like a big smile. And then he just kind of like shakes his like nods or shakes his coffee and then just turns around and walks back. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, after that, we end up finding out from Truman that Jack with one eye is referring to the place one eye Jacks, which has obviously been on uh, the on his radar. And we eventually see Cooper knock one of the bottles down uh, or knock one of the bottles out, which is referring to Leo Johnson. So now Leo Johnson is one of the prime suspects of Laura's murder. And then uh, back... Wait, what were you going to say? I was going to hop on. I love the... Uh, uh, how it's... It, it's like reaffirmed. Like if you're if you're watching closely when they're going through the names, there's like certain names where it's like, no way this person did it. And when Cooper throws, like it hits the trash bin. I think it's a Johnny Horn. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Like Audrey's younger brother who has a, a, a disability of some kind. Who was like distraught to a sad level. I remember that's one of those things that hit so hard. It's like him just hitting his head on the dollhouse that they used to play at or something. When he mm -hmm. found out Laura's dead, like he can't communicate that. Like that hit so hard. And someone's like, oh, Johnny Horn. And he throws it and like the camera, it feels like a separate environment the rock lands in. Like it hits a trash bin. I don't even know where that is in relation to the bottle, but like just showing how far off it is. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, it's like communicating. Like, oh, it's definitely not Johnny. <laughs> but that gives it credence when it does hit. I'm like, oh, must. You genuinely believe, especially on the first viewing, I think I did. I was like, like, yeah, he has to be connected somehow. Mm -hmm. it's just, yeah, I just wanted to point out the little subtle. No, that's anyway. that's a that's such a brilliant sequence, too, especially like what you're when you were saying with um, the placement, wherever the rock lands. And I, I want to say that with Jacoby, it almost hit one of the bottles or it, if not with him, it was with one of the other people where it, it knocks. Wait, what were you going to say? It was Jacoby. Like it hits the tree stump it's on and the bottle falls off. Mm -hmm. And then Cooper makes a point of like, 
I think Lucy asks, like, do I count that it hit? It's like, uh, Lucy, count that it hit, but it did not break or something. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, afterwards, we are back at the diner where we have yet another encounter with Audrey and Agent Cooper. And I believe that this is uh, where we get yet another dance clip from Audrey. <laughs> Probably the Which most is, famous one. Yes, it, it perfectly encapsulates just the entire mood of the show and that sort of dreamy feel of uh, kind of shutting out the world and just letting emotion and sound and atmosphere fill you with this very ethereal experience. And then... One of my favorite characters in the entire show is introduced, and his name is Albert Rosenfield. He is, I want to say, uh, a part of Cooper's FBI team. However, he does a bit more of the forensics, if I'm if I'm correct. And immediately, he is coming in red hot. Uh, not only uh, slandering the, the 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 police headquarters, but all the people who are helping in the investigation. He's immediately putting all of them down. And right off the bat, Truman fires back by pulling Albert aside and telling him that he's gonna, that if he keeps this up, there's gonna be even more trouble between the two. Yeah, I, I love what Albert comes in and he gives, he calls Lucy Curly, I think. Because <laughs> of her firm. And like second, He's not like ushered into where Cooper is. He's like immediately like, okay, is this gonna take another ten minutes? Is this gonna take? And then yeah, you uh, can. And then what? As, as I say, then the the great bit because it it shows Cooper and Harry are like looking at some forensic evidence of like a bloody rag. And there's a great like one of my favorite bits in this first season is a. Uh, I think Lucy contacts him and lets Cooper and Sheriff Truman know that Albert is here. And then I think Cooper's like, okay, you tell Albert we'll be there in a jiff or whatever. I'll be there in a second. And then he turns to Harry and says, he does the bit of like, you know, like Albert, he's abrasive, but he's he's the best of the best. And he's, yeah, he's, I forget what he says, but he says like something about like, he lacks some of like the social niceties that like people have and like as he says that like he puts his arm on Harry's shoulder <laughs> like kind of breaking the personal boundary of space <laughs> and then I think Harry says like nobody's perfect and then like he kind of looks at Cooper's hand <laughs> and Cooper just squeezes his nose makes like a horn noise <laughs> it's just one of the funny like I think the actor like is laughing. I was on the verge of busting up. <laughs> like I don't know if that was like a an improv moment, but yeah, I just feel like a genuine smile. That feels like one of the great behind the scenes moment they kept in. Mm -hmm. I have it open now, and the dude like has a he's on the verge of laughing as he's standing up in the scene. Yeah, I feel like those lighthearted moments do a wonderful job of offsetting 
a lot of the darker content that this show is known for. And, you know, during this, uh, this watch of the series, I'm finding how much I missed these moments and just how, how wonderful they are to, to witness them again because they can slowly be over or consumed by a lot of the more standout moments when these are equally as important. <laughs> like they, they make up the dynamics of all the characters. And uh, afterwards, we go back to Nadine and Ed's residence. And as Ed is sort of slinking in again, uh, Nadine shouts for him. And <laughs> uh, she is finally, or she finally uh, is proud of Ed and what he's done by giving her silent runners without him even meaning to, by with the uh, slab of grease that he got on them. And she's talking about like how they're finally gonna uh, have silence in their in their household, and that they're gonna become rich from this invention. And we've sort of talked about it a bit before uh, with Nadine's character of shutting out the world and just wanting complete control over everything, whether it's having silence or uh, no 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 unwanted stimuli. And it seems like she's one step closer to having the perfect inner world that she's been longing for. Maybe maybe there's a bit of hope between her and Ed, possibly, with with these new uh, runners. No, yeah, the yeah, the, runner, the runners are silent. We'll be billionaires and we'll we'll love each other and be happy. And you won't run away with Norma. It's like the undertone. Hmm. As well as, yeah, genuine happiness. It's, yeah, this, the, the, the triangle of Ed, uh, Norma, and Nadine is a brutal one. Because it's, uh, like, you feel, if you're the draw the arrows, like, there's love going in every direction between every point of the triangle. Mm. Even between, like, Norma and Nadine. Like, they're standoffish, but they're, like, they, they're, like, they're, like, adjacent friends. They weren't enemies. Like just fellow classmates. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you can tell that there's a uh, a bit of pity as well, or empathy uh, between, especially with uh, Norma and Nadine. In that, I don't know if uh, Norma feels guilty or if she feels responsible for some of the things that might have happened to Nadine. Uh, we don't we don't know yet so far. Um, but we can certainly imply that there is some sort of uh, guilt between that connection, not only because of uh, the the uh, the cheating that's going on in that triangle, but I don't know. I'm I'm looking forward to uh, rediscovering some more of those moments between all three of them. And afterwards, we go back to the Packard Mill and sort of continue on with that storyline, where Josie finds two different books. Um, I'm assuming that one of the ledgers is sort of a doctored one that Catherine had going on, and then the second one is the actual one, where she's embezzling money or doing all sorts of things. I, I can't uh, recall off the top of my head, though. Yeah. I, I think it's, yeah, it's... That's typically 
what it means. They're cooking mm -hmm. the books on one, and the other one's like the real one. So they have the option to, uh, if they're ever, because they're rich, they won't. I think if you're, yeah, they're kind, they're rich enough where they wouldn't get, like, raided by the police. They'll be politely asked to show up to court, and they could just grab the one they want to bring to court, depending on, the, they think the outcome they'll get. Mm-hmm. And afterwards, we go back to the Palmer residence, where we get a very strange scene, uh, a, a very demented one at that, where Leland Palmer is sort of having a, a, a nervous breakdown, or is at the start of one. Uh, the song that he's listening to is so unnerving. Uh, and he's like snapping away, like trying to like dance and everything. And he ends up going for Laura's photo and is in a strange manic fit of joy, but also just mourning and loss where I, I, I can't even, it, it's so hard for me to even figure out like what might be going on in Leland's head because he seems like he's trying to process what happened, but it's just causing him to completely shatter, which is so strange in comparison to, to the way that Sarah was handling it. Because Sarah is much more, like, she is showing her grief, and it's much more present in the way that she's displaying herself, in the way that she's communicating with others. Whereas with Leland, he's been the far more contained and reserved one of the two since discovering the murder. There's so many, so many great shots in this uh, dance sequence. I think it's like there's like an extreme close-up on the needle on the record, uh, and then Leland does like a certain like he like walks in the space. And he does like a look with a certain lighting, and then he turns to the Laura photo. And yeah, it's just like a tragic. Uh, as the season progresses, he has like a, it's like a regression, it feels like. And this is like an early sign of it, where it's like he's... It's like a forced 50s upbeat, like musical feeling he's trying to like escape to. And like, like maybe it's his childhood, maybe it's his youth when he's like a teenager. And like, yeah, he's like, puts the record on, it's an old song, and then he's doing... I gotta dance with someone, I gotta swing. And it just has that energy. As well and as like... Or... No, go for it. It has like that energy of like youth, the desire for nostalgia and escapism, but also like the dark undertones of that era. <laughs> like, it is uncanny, the, the music. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because it, it... Not only is he trying to reconnect with that sort of era of um, bliss and naivete and and almost like ignorance in a way or uh, being blissfully ignorant um, where he's you know trying to trying to channel all of his energy into physical action so that he can stave off the thoughts the the intrusive thoughts and the grief that is so desperately trying to break out of whatever container that he's placed it in and 
It seems it seems like it's just a pressure cooker at this point. And the more and more active he becomes, the the more and more pressure he has to put down onto the grief itself in order to placate it. And yeah, I, I'm with you with the with the uncanniness of the of the song and like the entire like atmosphere of this scene because it I, I want to say that it was during this episode as well as this sequence and the following one that really spoke to me. This was this was the point where I became locked in with the series after my first attempt, which didn't which didn't land with me. But on the second watch through, this is the moment where I was hooked. And uh you know, once again Leland becomes so frantic and frenetic that he ends up breaking the photo frame and cutting his hand and Sarah comes in screaming her head off about what he's, you know, questioning him like what are you doing? Like what is going on in this household? And it seems like a like a terror has has just opened a vacuum of of a uh, trauma and grief inside of their home and it's just consuming not only well it's consumed Laura but it, now it's starting to consume both Sarah and Leland and the entire town of Twin Peaks but that's sort of the epicenter of where that tear has taken or where that tear has opened and then we transition into Cooper's dream and this is definitely one of the more longer, abstract, surreal sequences that we've had so far. Uh, this, no, actually, this is probably the most uh, surreal sequence we've had. And we get a bit more insight into these uh, dreams that come to Cooper, where they're sort of esoteric and cryptic in nature, in that they provide details, but in the form of puzzles. Yeah, I love uh I love this like the first red room entry we do. And uh I think in, even in this if you look at stills like it's uh trying to think how to say this. They're not still finding their footing, but like there's certain changes that are still going to happen as the show progresses. Like uh in the dream the floor is like off. And then later on, it's like a different floor, the same floor, but it's like different. The black and whites are more contrasting. Uh, in this episode, there's some art deco imagery and like the lamps and the globe next to Cooper. But yeah, it's just like such a this is yeah, if you can't, this is the hook, I feel like for me too. Like the sequence was like the hook for me on the first watch attempt when I got to it. And then on this rewatch, it's like, oh, actually, there's a lot of hooks. There's a lot of like this episode. I know we've been saying probably every episode. I think I've said it, but uh, this is like the real, real, real hook for me in remembering that. Like, oh, yeah, there's like the, and it introduces the more cryptic dream stuff. Uh, and on rewatching, there's like there's character moments that are also like upon rewatching again. It's like, oh, yeah, this is why I really enjoyed this character, the Tibetan method. Like, I love that interaction between Cooper and all the sheriff. 
party. And then Albert and all those. Yeah, there's so many moments where it's like, oh, this is Leland's moment, even. It's hauntingly tragic. And like, oh, yeah, this is why going forward, Leland's more like this. And this is like the first hook of that. And then, yeah. The, this, uh, this dream sequence with the one-armed man and the use of phrases and then Bob is more, yeah, he actually he's not just a guy Laura's mom sees not Laura no, yeah, Laura's mom sees yeah, yeah there's, there's more things at play they're talking about you think I've gone insane, death bags as Cooper's like dreaming it's like fading in and out to them and abstract places kinda like Mike's in a hospital Bob I don't know where he is looks like a workshop and yeah then we're in the red room there's so many hooks so much intrigue has arisen yeah it seems like uh if these first three episodes were to look like an image the first one would obviously be a seed being planted in the ground the second one would be sort of the roots taking a, you know, bursting out of the seed and, you know, taking root inside of the ground itself. And this episode would be the, the seed beginning to grow above the ground, but not only above the ground, but in other sort of um, parallel realities. And to me, that is when I when I first saw this and it finally like uh, registered with me, it made me completely rethink how narratives and how storytelling can be told, um, especially in like a type of series like this, as well as on screen, because these places are very condensed, like especially with the red room, it's literally just one room. And that's a whole other parallel reality to the waking universe in Twin Peaks and we get so we get so much growth from all the characters like you mentioned Pat and uh, we get a lot more insight on a lot more of the cryptic side of, of this show and it's sort of a melding of the dream world with the waking one and I the, the seeing the red room it, it's so influential to me and it's so inspiring to see something like this take place because not only do we get the fact that you know they're speaking backwards whereas Cooper is speaking forwards showcasing the fact that he is still linked to the the living world uh whether or not you know the red room is is like some sort of purgatory if it's hell if it's heaven or if it's any other type of a, uh, um, you know, placeholder for like an afterlife or anything like that, but we get we get the fact that these characters speak in very strange phrases. It's not like a typical uh, straightforward dialogue. Like we get instances from uh, the the man from another place who saying you know that gum you like is going to come back in style and he you know we see sort of a, a doppelganger of Laura and that's one of my 
favorite motifs of, of this show too is the use of doppelgangers. And uh, he he tells Cooper, doesn't doesn't she look almost like Laura Palmer? And she, and he goes on to say she's my cousin or something like that. And then Laura says something along the lines of, you know, sometimes my arms bend backwards or something like that. And it's like so strange, but it, it captures an essence of what she's trying to get at. Like to me, I feel like these people speak in in uh in metaphors or in in like some type of figurative language that encapsulates emotion rather than literal meaning itself. Mm-hmm. And uh, one other thing that I found very strange is that the man from another place talks about like the origins of where they come from and he says like something along the lines of uh, where we come from birds sing pretty songs and music is always in the air and like this room is so detached from the natural world and the music that's playing itself is you know a bit more it's it's a bit of the same music that we've had uh, throughout the show itself which sort of links this room to Twin Peaks in a even more surreal way in that it's not, you know, maybe it's just a place that you can access or or find somewhere not too far off down the road in, you know, mystery or in in the thick of the fog or something like that. Like it, it seems like there are much more ties or there are fewer ties to this place than possibly imagined or I don't know. Um and then we get Laura uh, kissing Cooper and whispering in his ear. And it's like, okay, well, what, what, is, what did she say? Like, it, it just creates even more mystery because this is the, this is the first time that we see uh, sort of like a placeholder for Laura. Um, you know, and we still haven't even seen Laura all too much. You know, we've seen her in the the VHS camera uh, or the VHS footage, as well as the uh, the flashback that she had with uh, with James on the final day that she was murdered, I think. But we never get the present version of Laura. It's always these fractured or duplicated or past versions or completely fragmented and. I just love this uh, this alternative version of her and it's like okay well are there even more versions of her or what and then we we finally uh wake come to from the dream where uh cooper immediately calls harry and tells him about this dream that he had especially involving mike you know where he's talking about through the darkness of future's past, the magician longs to see one chance out between two worlds. Fire, walk with me. And he's talking about like how he lived above a convenience store and how there was a tattoo on his arm that sort of signified evil. And in cutting it off, he fractured the bond that he had with Bob. But he, d- he doesn't tell... Uh, Truman all this right away, but we get we get like a bit of a hint that in the following episode 
we might see more of this. And then I love how Cooper's hair is like slicked up. <laughs> like it just adds a bit of like lightheartedness to the scene and how he's like still snapping to the beat of the song that yeah, was playing in his dream. He's like, yeah, it's great. Well, like, yeah, it really it really communicates to like it happened. The dream isn't just like, yeah, he woke up like, oh, it has weight to him. And then, yeah, I love the, the hair swoosh. It's like, yeah, Agent Cooper's so neat that that's what his bed hair looks like. <laughs> just one little thing he has to comb back and then it's down again. And yeah, it's just a great, it's a great hook and like, yeah. Like you said, with this, this introduction and its connection to the town of Twin Peaks and the energy, it just makes, it made me believe like, okay, anything can happen in the show. It's grounded, but there's still a magical aspect, which I love in media. Yeah, it's, yeah, there's just, there's room for higher stuff to happen than just the grounded police procedural or a FBI procedural. Which is like another great thing about the X-Files. Like there could be aliens. Maybe the Tibetan technique could work. This dream sequence makes me fully believe like in this show's universe, there there could be a magic. Yeah, it seems like there's multiple investigations going on all at the same time. Like, like you said, like not only at the, the police headquarters of like that, you know, uh, the straightforward investigation of finding out who killed Laura um, in that sort of waking realm. But there's also like sort of a, a spiritual investigation that goes far beyond Laura. Um, it seems like it's stretching even further back to the motive of, you know, inflicting this much pain and trauma onto another being. Uh, especially with the with the insight that was provided on Bob and how, you know, he has like his death bag or something like that and how he's just sort of he's trying to find Mike to get back at him or something like that for for the splitting off that they had because I believe that they used to be partners or were like he said they lived in a or above a convenience store whatever that means um, and there's a, there's a tattoo of evil. That's like, what does that mean? Can you just put the tattoo on someone? He had to cut his arm off to remove it. Yeah, it's like, is that a, is that like a rune that you know becomes you know once you put it on something you become tied to the the epicenter of evil or is it like a doctrine that you have to follow or some type of like uh, order that you belong to afterward? It's it's all I it's the perfect uh, balance of crypticness as well as uh, straightforwardness, in that we're given lines that are poetic and figurative, yet they make in they make sense on an intuitive level, which you know I find that sometimes if that's done in other forms of media or anything like that, it walks a very fine line of being insightful or completely cheesy and the way that it's handled in this episode is just so well done it's completely believable it's it makes me even more invested to see what comes in the future 
because like like you said pat you know once we've seen this it seems like anything is possible in this show it's sort of a transcended the gap between reality and the power of cinema, what it what it can actually show to the viewer, rather than just being straightforward visuals and and the melding of visuals and sound. It it can it can cut directly to the core, you know, beyond uh meaning of beyond the uh the bridge that communication seeks to create between one person and another or multiple people it does it on like a symbolic uh level which to me that's that's what i absolutely adore because i'm not very good with words i when it comes to talking i'm not good at you know thinking on my feet i do much better when i have time to articulate what it is that i'm trying to say uh, so that's why I bumble a lot on this, on this, uh, not only this show, but just in person as well. Um, so that's why when I, when I watch this show, it makes me feel a little less insane when it comes to like communicating, because that's the form of communication that I love most is, as unspoken as well as, um, just, uh, communication that you can understand on an intuitive level rather than having to speak it or or anything like that no yeah i think you touch on a big resonating factor for the show it's just a feeling it gives you and it res yeah it hits so hard yeah um other than that like do you have any closing thoughts pat closing thoughts closing thoughts uh I don't know if we talked about this yet. I'm trying. I'm trying not to fall into that whole, you know, the 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 overanalyzing stuff mm -hmm. of like what is the pin on Cooper? What is the jewelry Laura's wearing? I'll still probably do it, but uh, on the rewatches, like I, I have a new appreciation. I, knew. I always had an appreciation for what you were just talking about, like how it resonates. And I think that's like the big thing I'm going to be doing going forward with the series, our rewatch. Re it's just talking about like how it succeeds and how it resonates and just how perfect it is in resonating. But yeah, I don't know if we aired that stuff. Like, don't expect a, a deep dive on the floor tile significance. Or the or the statue. What are the famous? What's the famous? Uh, Venus de Milo. Yeah, no, but I'm like, what are all the hooks from the show that people argue about endlessly? Like oh, uh, uh, about like uh, just in the essence of like what the show is actually like going for, or uh, yeah, or the like, mo mm, or like the motifs that people always go back to what the show's about like when people try to like concretely say here's what the whole show is about me i i feel like the entire show is about the birth of evil yeah and and the the balance of like i mean it, you could say that about like any any type of thing that there's always there's always an imbalance in any form of story or if there isn't a, an imbalance there is balance that becomes imbalanced and it's like what do you do with that do you find the do you go back to the equilibrium 
of it being imbalanced versus balance or whatnot. But yeah, to me, this show is about the birth of evil and how the light of the world is always at odds with it. So yeah, like I, I definitely get what you're saying in that like this, what you and I are doing is it's not going to be like entirely grounded in that form of a anal you know, analyzing the show for like the meaning of like, oh, why was the fish in the percolator? Like, oh, does it send back to rainbow trout? Like I've yeah. seen like there, there's like if you go, here's why I'm right. Yeah, that stuff. Yeah. Like I, I, I know that there's like a four and a half hour long video mm -hmm. on YouTube that talks about like rainbow trout from Twin Peaks and how like that's anyways, we aren't going to be doing that. <laughs> like, no. um, um, because there's, there's so many other podcasts, YouTube break, you know, video breakdowns, any, any written, uh, essays on this stuff that will do a far better job of connecting the dots. than I know I can, uh, Pat, Pat probably could, but I cannot. <laughs> um, um, so yeah, I, I'm definitely in the same boat as you, Pat. I'm much more going to be focusing on a lot of the, the meaning that is imbued with uh, some of the smaller scenes that characters have with one another, as well as the symbolic nature of like the icons and the motifs that come up and how they can be tied to not only like the world of Twin Peaks, but with the world of our own. Like that, that's the stuff that I that I like getting into. Twin Peaks is in a puzzle. It's a feeling. Mm -hmm. That's why the show resonates. I, I expect us are... to be talking about feelings and not the puzzle. Yes, I, I definitely think you hit that right on the head, Pat. Especially because just the way that Lynch is as a director, all of his movies, they like, they're just all experiences. And I know that that sounds very lame or pretentious to hear but it's it's absolutely true i think that he is like even just seeing like behind the scenes stuff with him and how he directs actors and stuff he doesn't necessarily tell them uh literalness like when it comes to like blocking or anything like that he and i feel like that's why i kind of resonate with the way that he directs people because i tend to do that in my own work too where it's in a much more figurative way of uh, getting somebody to to an emotional epicenter, you know, during the performance of like, oh, well, you know, imagine that you're going down this long, dark hallway and there's like something going on. And it's like you're trying to lead people to a feeling that you've had in order to enhance not only your own connection with that person, but with the rest of the world, even. Even if uh, everyone else is completely unaware of it, it's like it's just all about interconnectedness of, you know, discovering that shared feeling. But, uh, I think that I think that that was my final thought. <laughs> my my two brain cells just uh, came up with that. So I don't know. <laughs> But um, anyways, uh, for all of you listening, thank you so much for keeping up with us on this uh, watch through. Uh, if you haven't already and you would like to, you can uh, follow us on Instagram. Our handle is at Podcast. Or if you want to write into us, you can do so at 
leaffilmpodcast at gmail.com. Feel free to send us any thoughts, anything. If you want to be a guest on the show, feel free to write us. Um, you know, we have not only the rest of this season, but we have season two and three to cover. So we'll make time for you. <laughs> Even if you're a stranger and you want to be on, you just got to swear to conduct yourself with a certain amount of character <laughs> and you can I'm open to it even <laughs> definitely agree uh, but yeah thank you once again for listening and be sure to check out the following episodes that we come out with I'm really loving doing this with you Pat and uh, yeah hope you all have a great day <laughs>